Hey, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Um, I have some peculiarities about me. Is that hard for you to, to believe that? Uh, some idiosyncrasies, if you will. Raise your hand if you'd like to hear just a few of those odd things about me. Yeah, how many of you already knew that? Like, you're like, we get it, you're weird, right? So let me just share some things about me. I have some dietary rules that are very, very firm, and that seems odd for a fat guy, right? And so, uh, but I do have some very strict dietary rules. Rule number one, and our staff could, could tell you these because they know them very well. Rule number one, I do not eat meat off the bone. Now, I'm very aware that all meat that is off the bone at one time was on the bone, but that doesn't matter to me. I don't eat meat off the bone. I don't know why I never have. I can't do it. Rule number two, uh, no seafood. Like if I had a quarter for every time someone said, hey, try this, it doesn't taste fishy at all. And they're always lying, all right? So rule number two, I don't eat seafood. I've tried, you know, someone's going to come out to the service and say, oh, you should try this because it does. You know, listen, I've tried it all, all the seafoods. I can't stand any of it. Rule number three, I only eat salad uh, if it's lettuce-based. Now, what do you mean? Well, I don't eat uh, tuna salad or ham salad or potato salad and for macaroni salad. And for all that is holy, under no circumstances would I ever in a million years eat egg salad. I don't know if you know this or not, but egg salad is what they serve every day in hell for lunch. You can trust me, I'm a pastor, all right? When I was younger, I had some other food rules. Uh, when I was younger, uh, no food was allowed to touch. How many of you have that rule? Food, food cannot touch. Yeah, a couple weirdos in here. Uh, when I was younger, I only ate one thing at a time. How many of you, anybody do that? You just eat one thing at a time? Yeah. Now, just as you get older, I just put it in a blender, just right, just it doesn't matter. So I only ate one thing at a time. So there's some other odd things about me. Let me just share these as well. I read the obituaries faithfully. Anybody else read the obituaries like all the time? Yeah, there's a couple people, heads are better, yeah, right? I want to know if, the, if I know the pastor who's officiating. I want to know if it's me and I missed it, right? So I always read the obituaries. My daughter came in the other day. I was on the computer. She said, what are you doing? I said, read the obituaries. She just walked out and said, you are weird. Here's another one. This one is a little bizarre, um, maybe even a little creepy. I love to read articles about dying people's last words. Uh, how many of you think that's, that's a little creepy? Would you just, yeah, some of you are looking for a new church, aren't you, right? Like, it's not, not for us. Uh, I, just, I just find it fascinating that at the end of people's lives, like your, your final words, it's, you know, people are going to remember for all of your life, and these are your final words. And so I wrote down some of uh, my favorite ones, Humphrey Bogart. Uh, said this, his final words were, I should have never switched from scotch to martinis. Those were his final words. Uh, Joan Crawford, uh, her final words were this, don't you dare ask God to help me. She was yelling at a maid who started praying out loud for her recovery. And those were her final words. Walt Disney, Walt Disney's final words, he couldn't speak them, so he wrote them on a piece of paper. Now, let's play a little game here. He wrote two words on a piece of paper. Now, if Walt Disney had to write two words on a piece of paper, what do you think those words would be? That's exactly it. Mickey Mouse. You know what his final two words he wrote uh, on paper were? Kurt Russell. I guess Kurt Russell was a child actor working for Walt Disney. I don't know if it's a prophetic statement. He's going to be famous. Those were his final two words. Uh, Kurt Russell. Elvis' final words, I'm going to the bathroom to read. True story. Alfred Hitchcock said this, one never knows the ending, one has to die to know exactly what happens after death, and this is great, although Catholics have their hopes, that's what Alfred Hitchcock was his, his final words. 
Well, in chapter 3, verse 11 through 18, we have recorded for some of us uh, Peter's very final words because he's getting ready to be crucified. Uh, scripture tells us in history, uh, plays that out. And uh, true to form, dying men don't speak idle words. They don't chat about the weather. They don't talk about sports. And so in his final words here in first, or Second Peter chapter 3, uh, he just begins to pour out his heart and say, listen, the Lord is coming back. Be ready for his return. Uh, one writer eloquently put it this way. He said, with the little remaining strength at his disposal, he grips his quill more tightly and with a firmer hand than scribes upon the parchment before him the final words in his faithful attempt to strengthen his brothers. The sands in the hourglass of time are slipping away and soon neither voice nor pen will he be able to serve the Savior here among men. Savage men are closing in upon him. Perhaps already the sentence of execution has been passed. Very soon brutal hands will drag him away to the possibilities of the cursed tree where he'll be crucified. And he contemplates and reviews against the words he's just written. And then he wonders, is there time for one final emphasis? And he decides there is, and so he pins these final words. Let's pick up these final words in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're actually going to start back in verse 10, uh, just to set a little context this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, uh, since all these things will be dissolved, uh, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless... We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in him of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twists to their own destruction he's talking about false teachers there and as they do also the rest of the scriptures yet therefore beloved since you know this beforehand beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked but grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ to him be the glory both now and forever amen so these are peter some of his final words uh, history tells us he was crucified when they went to crucify him he said i'm not worthy uh, to be crucified as my lord and so they crucified him upside down and so he knows that time is coming the lord has told him his death would be at hand and so these are some of his final words and in his final words he's saying hey the lord is coming back and it may not be today and it may not be tomorrow but he will return in verses one through nine he's built the case for the sure promise of the second coming and so in verse 11 through 18, he says, uh, the Lord is coming back. And so therefore, this is what your life should look like. These are the things people should say about you. These are the efforts you should pour out your life for so that when the Lord comes, you are ready. And in doing so, he lists out several things. here, And I just want to walk you through them this morning. In a message titled, Ready or Not, uh, Here He Comes. And so uh, how to be ready for Christ's return. Uh, first thing we see in the passage is simply this, is that eternal perspective should shape present uh, living. 
Eternal perspective should actually shape the way that we live up presently. This week I was uh, on a website, I was doing some research, and I was looking at uh, some things that Francis Chan had written on eternity. And there on Francis Chan's website, I knew I was walking through this passage. I knew what the subject of Peter's final words were, getting ready and living with eternal perspective. And, and so I was gripped because on Chan's website, uh, on the front page, had a picture of him. And then just these words across the front. Here's what it said. Uh, what are you living for? What are you living for? And that is the question that these verses uh, should force us towards. Are you living with the pursuit of personal pleasure that that the whole idea of your life is to squeeze in as many experiences as you can? Are you living for approval or acceptance? Are you living for a certain economic status? Are you living for a certain level of achievement? Are you living for your kids? Are you living for their, their achievements athletically and academically and all those things and how that makes you feel and look as a parent? And so the question is from these verses, what are you living for? And I'm not interested in the church's answer, because the church's answer is, well, I'm living for the Lord, right? I'm interested in what does the evidence of your life actually point towards? Because it's one thing to make a proclamation, but when we open up our checkbook and our calendar, and if we could see the affections of our heart, the question is, what are you living for in light of the Lord's return? Verses 1 through 10, uh, he says he's coming back and then in verse 10 he erases all doubt and says this is exactly uh, what it will look like and then so he poses this question it's actually not a question it's in the form of an exclamation Uh, look at verse 11 he said therefore now i've told you this a bunch so i hope you can repeat this as quickly as i can anytime you're walking through scripture and you see the word therefore uh, you have to ask a simple question what's it there for and so he says uh, therefore in light of all these things Verses 1 through 10, in light of the Lord's sure coming, verses 1 through 10, therefore, what does he say in verse 11? Since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He's saying, hey, in light of the Lord's return, verses 1 through 9, in light of when he appears, all that you see will be dissolved. Revelation says, rolled up like a scroll. So in light of all of those things, what type of person you should be motivated by godliness and holiness. And so what he's saying here is eternal perspective uh, should shape present living. And in verse 11, he wants to know what kind of person uh, would you be if you were honestly living with the anticipation and the eagerness of the Lord's return? Shouldn't it have some very strong implications on how you live your life? And if I'm living with an eternal perspective, all of a sudden, guess what? The things that were I thought once important on this side of eternity, all of a sudden those things get put into perspective. All the grudges, hurts, and hang-ups I've been holding on to all of a sudden become trivial. All the things that I've been living for that are temporal all of a sudden aren't as important as they used to be. Because eternal perspective should shape present-day living. So verse 11, uh, he says, uh, what type of person ought you to be and then he gives two descriptors uh, look him there in verse 11 a person marked by holy conduct in godliness holy conduct and godliness holiness refers to conduct uh, and godliness refers to the attitude uh, one writer put it this way i love what he said he said holy conduct refers to that which rules my behavior and godliness refers to that which rules my heart i like that that makes sense to me And so holy conduct rules my behavior and godliness rules uh, my heart. Holy means uh, distinct 
from the world. Now, I've said this many, many times, and I just uh, want to repeat this over and over. Holiness is not a synonym for weird. Did you know that? Like many times in our quest for holiness uh, within the bounds of evangelical Christianity, it's not too hard to drift over into weirdness. And the fact of the matter is many times those folks uh, would be weird whether they were Christians or not. And so many times we get caught up on all these kinds of things. Uh, But let me tell you what's different about us. What should be weird about us is that this world doesn't hold our affections. That the great eagerness of our heart and our life and the anticipation of our thoughts is not tied to anything uh, in this world. What's weird about us is that we're not motivated uh, by the things that other people are motivated. What's weird about us is that we treasure Christ above all else. What's weird about us is we actually get more joy in giving than we do uh, in getting. We hold things loosely in this world. Why? Because we're not attached to it. And when people look at that lifestyle and they say, hey, there's something different about you. You say, you know what? I'm just, this, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through is what the old song says. And so I hold things loosely. Godliness has the root idea of reverence and awe towards God. William Barclay in his commentary said this. He said, it's the attitude which gives God the place he ought to occupy in life and in thought and in devotion. Now, so, so he's making a clear case. Verses 1 through 9, hey, the Lord's coming back. And when he does, verse 10, all that you see around you, it will dissolve. And so therefore, what type of person should you be? Verse 11, in light of those truths, how, how does that shape how you actually live? Now, you know this about me, I like practical. Tell me what the text says, whether I like it or not, tell me what it says, and then show me what does that look like. And so in verses 1 through 10, the Lord's coming back. Uh, verse 11, therefore, what should your life be marked by? Verses 12 through 18, this is what it should look like. And so he's going to walk us right through uh, in verses 12 through 18, uh, what your life should look like when the Lord returns. So take careful notes during this part of the message and careful inventory of your life after the message. So uh, what does it look like? Verse, uh, second thing we see is this, is that we should live in a state of expectancy. In a state of expectancy. Uh, look at verse 12. He says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with uh, fervent heat. The word looking for uh, has the idea of expectancy. And we talked about this last week, that if we were honest, sometimes the affections of our heart get so intertwined with what's going on in this world around us that the thought of the Lord's return is almost uh, an interruption. Okay, listen. I want Jesus to come back as much as the next person, but, but next week would be better, right? Like if he could just wait until I you know, got this out of the way, or if I could just, you know, I want to see my kids get married, those kinds of things. And he says, no, no, those of us who are living for the Lord's return are looking for it. Now, the word hastening is the idea of eager desire. And so instead of living in fear of the future, remember the false teachers, they didn't want the Lord to come back. You know Why? Because he was going to bust them in wicked living. But he says those who are living with a conduct of godliness and holiness. Verse 11. No, no, we're not not fearful of the Lord's return. We're eagerly anticipating about it. No, so what does that mean? That means I'm dealing with some issues in my life and heart on a continual basis. That means I'm going to be dealing with some things so that I can say I want him to come. Because I know when he comes, I won't be ashamed of his coming. Uh, Listen to 1 John 2, 28. When he appears, 
we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame uh, at his coming. I don't know if you like this or not. But when you study the pages of scripture, here's what you have to realize. That a person who honestly lives with the anticipation of their heart, waiting for the Lord to appear, for the person who lives with an eternal perspective, that on this side of eternity, that person will be uncomfortable on the earth in its godless culture. Do you understand that? That if I'm truly living that way with an eternal anticipation, and I'm living with a set of values and convictions that are totally contrary to a godless culture, uh, we should feel out of place. And so, so, so why do we long for the Lord's return? Because finally, our hearts will be home. Finally, we, we no longer feel as an outsider in a godless culture that finally when the Lord returns, it satisfies the affections of our hearts. Listen to all the words. The Bible describes believers in a godless culture. Believers are referred to as aliens. and Not not the space kind, all right? Believers are referred to in this world as strangers, foreigners, uh, pilgrims. And the reason those terms are used is because our citizenship is in heaven and Jesus is our king. And so therefore, uh, we don't love the world or the things of the world. We feel a little out of place, and so the thought of the Lord coming back satisfies our heart because we're thinking and crying out, finally, finally, my heart will be at home, and I'll finally be at peace. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says this, the reward for those who live with this type of expectation. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to those who have longed For his appearing. So don't let your hearts get too comfortable here. Because the Bible says, hey listen. When the Lord comes back, finally you'll be at home. Finally you'll take up your citizenship where it is all along. According to Philippians. Here's the third thing we see in this passage is this. Is that we should put every effort into a clear conscience. Put every effort into a clear conscience as we wait for the Lord's return. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 14. He says, therefore, now anytime you see the word therefore in scripture, I don't know if I've told you this or not, you have to ask the question. The question is, what is it? Good, yeah, both of you are listening. All right. And so look what he says, therefore, beloved, looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blemish. Peter uh, was fond of the word diligent. As we walk through this, uh, he used it in verses, uh, chapter one, verse five, he said this, now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, Supply moral excellence. He used it again, chapter 1, verse 10. Brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about your calling. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 15. And I will be diligent so that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So the diligent means giving my attention uh, to something. So what exactly is it that I'm giving my attention to if I'm living in anticipation of the Lord's return? Go back to the text. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent for what? To be found by him in peace without spot or blameless. Here's what it means. It means as much as my ability, I'm living with a conscience that is motivated by holiness and godly behavior to the point where I have a clear conscience. That I'm not living with any harbored, unrepentant sin. 
that I, that I know there's not relational strife between me and some brother or sister, and I'm just saying, you know what, it's their fault, and they did me wrong, and, and God knows it, and all those kinds of things. And no, 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 he says, listen, if the Lord's really coming back and you're living with that anticipation, then do everything, be diligent to pursue peace. Romans 12, 18 says this, if possible, so as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Uh, Romans 14, 9, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Now, let me ask you this. Would people describe you as a person who is diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless because you're looking for the day of the Lord's return? Or do you kind of live your life by this motto? You know what? It did me wrong. And if they would repent, I would, I, would, I would reconcile that. Are you just kind of the person who say, hey, when someone wrongs me, I just write them off totally. There's no, there's no forgiveness here. There's no grace extended. There's no reconciliation, those kinds of things. And we feel good about it. Are you a person who repays evil for evil is what the book of uh, Romans says. And so, so what does it mean to live with a sense of peace in light of the Lord's soon coming? What it means is this. You see, if I know I'm holding on to some things that aren't God-honoring, if I know I'm holding on to some things that don't model holy conduct and a godly heart, then guess what? I have a little anxiety about the Lord's return. Let's say hypothetically that I came up to you after church and said, hey, what are you doing after church? Oh, I don't know. Why? I'm going to come over to your house for lunch. Some of you are thinking, you know what? Uh, we need to send someone on ahead so they can burn the house down. Amen? Right? Like I told my wife the other day with our little girl's room, I said, you know what, let's just set it on fire and start over. You would have anxiety at my appearing, right? Because you know that your house is not in order. But some of you, you're in, listen, you're, everything is always spotless. Yeah, anybody like that? Like you just love to clean? Good, because no one likes you, all right? But if you're that person, that weirdo, if I could, and I said, hey, I'm coming over, you would say, fantastic. My house is in order. What do you want for lunch? Egg salad. No. <laughs> you would have any anxiety at my appearing. Why? Because your house is in order. And so the idea here is that I'm living. Uh, the false teachers, they had no peace about the Lord's return. Why? Because they knew that their house wasn't in order. And so what he's saying here is that you should live with your house in order as much as possible is with you. So let me ask you a simple question in light of verse 12. If you knew for sure that the Lord was returning at the end of June... What would you start doing? And what would you stop doing? Let me just pause long enough to make that awkward. What would you start doing? And what would you stop doing? And if there are some clear things you can come to, then guess what? The Lord showing up at your house produces some anxiety in your life. That's the idea of verse 12. He said, as much as possible, live at peace. Live that the thought of the Lord's coming back. Hey, listen, I'm not perfect, but I've got peace at his return. What's the fourth thing we should do in light of the Lord's return? Fourth thing we should do according to this passage is that uh, we should be a missionary. 
Uh, two years ago, we had a guest speaker during Missions Week, uh, Rick Duncan. Rick's become a friend of mine, and Rick shared a phrase they use at their church all the time, and I just grabbed onto it. I love this phrase. Uh, Rick said this, we tell our people all the time, you are a missionary cleverly disguised as a fill-in-the-blank. Whatever it is that you do for a living, you're a missionary cleverly disguised as a stay-at-home mom. You're a missionary cleverly disguised as an engineer. You're a missionary cleverly disguised as a student. Fill in the blank. And he said, want our people to, to live with that idea. Well, listen, in light of what the text says, and in light of I really do expect that the Lord's returning, uh, verse 15 says, you should live that way. Look at verse 15. He says, and consider, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now, he's actually uh, pointing back to verse 8. Go back to verse 8. We looked at last week. Uh, verse 8 said this, But beloved, uh, do not forget the, this one thing with the Lord is one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And then in verse 9 he says this, The Lord is not slack or late concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering. He is patient toward us. Why? Not willing that any should perish, but that all uh, should come to repentance. He says, hey, you should consider that. You should recognize that the reason that the Lord is delayed is in his return is because he desires that all should come to repentance. And so when you live with consideration that, guess what? You're going to be a missionary. You're going to be go out planting gospel seeds and having gospel conversations and engaging in gospel neighboring and, and all of these things. Why? Because you should consider that and live that way. And so how do we do that? Now, here's the reality. Uh, when it comes to evangelism, there's an old saying, and I think it's true, uh, that both believers and unbelievers have one thing in common when it comes to evangelism. They both hate it. And so uh, most of the time we just feel guilty. And so let's move beyond that guilt into action. And let me just ask you a, a question. Have you ever sat down and thought through what would it look like, practically speaking, to be a missionary, cleverly disguised as a fill-in-the-blank? What, 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 what things would you do? Like if you really lived in consideration of the Lord's return and in consideration that his delay is so that all men come to repentance, verse 9, like what would it look like, practically speaking, for you to actually live as a missionary cleverly disguised as a fill-in-the-blank? That's what he's saying in verse 15. And you ever prayed and asked God to open up doors of opportunity for you to be a missionary at work or at school or in your neighborhood? And listen, we need to do a better job of this in our life. Yeah, every year at certain key times, we go around and, and invite our, our neighbors to church, you know, Easter and some other kind of events. And you know what? They've, they've never, never shown up. I don't think they like Tasha. I can't figure it out yet. I don't totally know what's going on. Who doesn't like me? Amen? No, nobody. Nobody said amen. That's, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. Amen. Thank you. But here's the reality. You know, we prayed for the pitchers this morning, and the pitchers are missionaries no more than you are. Did you know that? God has called all of us to live on mission. And in verse 15, what he says, he says, hey, consider, take into account, weigh it out, that the long-suffering, the patience of our Lord is what? Salvation. Salvation. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.11. He says, knowing therefore 
that the terror of the Lord, uh, he's talking about the, the return of Christ and judgment, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, uh, we persuade men. Can I just, just share a little uh, something here that's just always on my heart when it comes to this issue? There, there, we spend a lot of energy talking about who God chose and who God didn't. Listen, let's spend as much energy persuading men. Amen? I think the kingdom would be a lot stronger if we just shared Christ faithfully. Living on mission. Here's the last thing. Living in light of the Lord's return. Last thing is this. Know your Bible. Know your Bible. You say, does it really say that? Look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved. So, so listen, when he says beloved, is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Believers. He's talking to Christians. He's writing to the people in the church gathered. He says, therefore, you beloved, since you know this beforehand, uh, what, know what beforehand? That false teachers are trying to come in and do all this kind of stuff. Uh, beware, lest you also f- fall from your own steadfastness. That you would, you would stumble in faithfulness. You're thinking, I, I, would, I would never do that. But how, how in the world? Or, you know, how, do, how do people do that? He answers, look at the end of that, verse 17. Being led away, how? With the error of the wicked. What he's saying is that your steadfastness or perseverance in living with eternal perspective is in direct proportion to your ability to discern truth from error. People who are led astray by false teaching often have very little knowledge of Scripture. And here's what I want you to understand. We saw throughout this that a false teacher doesn't come in wearing a red suit with a pitchfork. Say, hey, listen, what I'm teaching will lead you to hell. They're not leading with that, right? They have just enough truth to disarm you, but you're not discerning enough to recognize that when there's error, and so what happens is we get deceived. And in verse 17, he says, you'll be led astray. You'll get off course. You'll stumble in the area of perseverance in light of the Lord's re- return. Uh, that's why in Ephesians 4.14, it gives us this exhortation. It says this, uh, we should be no longer infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. In other words, what he's saying is this, when someone gets up and teaches, you should be able to say, hey, that, that they're not faithfully handling the word of God. They're not rightly dividing the word of truth. Otherwise, you're set up for... Ten- so, so here's the question. How are we doing in American Christianity when it comes to knowing our Bible? So, so let, let me give you some stats. We're almost done, all right? Here's some stats on biblical literacy uh, within Christianity in, in America. Uh, researchers George Gallup and Jim Castelli put the problem squarely. Here's what they said. Americans revere the Bible, uh, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, we have become a nation of biblical illiterates. And so, how bad is it? So, so these are real stats. Researchers tell us it's worse than we could ever imagine. Fewer than half of all adults can name uh, the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. According to Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans can't even name five uh, of the Ten Commandments. And so he gives this quote. He says, no wonder... People break the Ten Commandments all the time. They they don't know what they are. Increasingly, America is biblically illiterate. Multiple surveys reveal the problem in in many terms. According to 82% of Americans, listen to this, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. You say, well, that's not not every Christian would think that, right? Uh, When they surveyed Christians, only 1% difference in the answer. 1%. I love this one. 
Barna Research Poll indicated that 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. I hope no one turned to the neighbor and said, well, she was, wasn't she? No, she sells kidney beans. I don't know if you've seen those or not in the store. I don't know why I said that. That wasn't in my notes. That was super, wasn't it? Is Joan of Arc, they sell beans, right? Am I right? Yeah, yeah. I'm right. I'm the pastor, all right? Uh, graduating high school seniors, another survey, 50% saw that, uh, thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. Let me read to you verse 17 again. Therefore, beloved believers, since you know that false teaching will happen, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. You think, well, I would never quit being faithful to the Lord. He says, beware, because some will. How do they do that? Being led away with the error of the wicked. You want to be ready for the Lord's return? Know your Bible. Know your Bible is what verse 17 says. The 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, the last of the marathon runners were being carried off the field to first aid stations about an hour after the winner had crossed the finish line. Just a few spectators were still gathered. Most of them had already left. The event was over. And so just a few spectators were in the stands when suddenly they hear the sound of sirens and police whistles. And all eyes turn to the gate to see John Stephen Aquari wearing the colors of Tanzania limping into the stadium. His leg was bloodied and bandaged from a terrible fall. And he hobbled around the track past the finish line as the crowd rose and applauded as if he were the winner. And someone later asked him, they said, hey, the race was way over. You had no chance of receiving a medal. Why in the world did you not quit? And his reply was this. He said, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. Brothers and sisters, one day the clouds will open and the Lord himself will descend with a shout and we should be eager for that day. But until then, keep running. God didn't save you to start a race. God saved you to finish your race. And so no matter how often you stumble, no matter how much you struggle, no matter how weak you feel, keep running for the glory of God and for the gospel to go to the nations. Keep running. Keep running. Until he comes. Keep running. Would you bow your heads this morning? If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, let me ask you a question. If the Lord appeared today, does that produce fear and anxiety in your heart? If the Lord came back today, would you be ready? 
Or would you be saying, just, just give me one more day to get my life cleaned up. Just give me one more weekend to have a good time. Just give me just a little longer, Lord. Let me warn you with the words of Scripture. Don't brag about tomorrow because you don't know what a day brings forth. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And so if the Lord appeared today, would you be ready because you know Jesus? If the answer is no this morning, then guess what? You can accept Christ right where you're at this morning, right in your seat. You don't have to walk forward. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to join a church. You can accept Christ right now, right where you're at. Would you pray and confess your sins before a holy God this morning? Would you declare that Jesus died on the cross as payment for your sins, was buried and rose the third day? And would you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, asking him to be your Lord and your Savior? Would you do that today, right where you're at, right now? Would you do that? Maybe you're here and you've already done that a long time ago. And you say, you know what? If the Lord came back right now, if I'm honest, I'd be a little anxious. I've got some things I should start doing and I've got some things I should stop doing in light of his return. And I need the courage to make that adjustment today. I need the courage to come to the place of repentance. Would you just pray for me that, that I'd have courage to do that? Would you just raise your hand right now and say, hey, that's me. If the Lord returned right now, there's some things I would stop doing and some things I'd start doing. That's me. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. 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 Anybody else this morning? Let me just pray for you this morning. Father, I pray for every person that raised their hand. I pray for every person that should have raised their hand. I pray that your Holy Spirit would deal with their hearts in such a way that you would bring them to repentance. And Lord, as they come to the place of repentance, we know that your grace overflows and empowers them to the point where they have the courage, the grace-filled courage to move forward in godliness and holiness so that the thought of the Lord's return produces peace, not fear. God, help them to leave today changed not informed, changed. Help them to live today in anticipation of the Lord's return. God, help all of us to guard our hearts for setting our affections on the things of this world. May we live with the expectancy of your soon return. And we pray with honest hearts, even so, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.